All right. Good morning again. I tell you, I'm excited to be here this morning. I don't know. I woke up a little bit late, and so maybe it was that like adrenaline. If you've ever your alarm hasn't gone off, and you wake up and realize you're running a little bit late, and your heart starts going a little bit, and you start moving a little bit faster. Got that going on. So I might get tongue tied this morning with all the P's in my outline. It seemed like a good idea at the time with the alliteration because I love it, but I don't know. Uh, to bring you up to speed, we went through the book of Judges, and now we started to work through the book of Ruth, and we're in chapter 2 this week. And uh, if you've ever watched a, a TV show, sometimes they'll do, right before they'll do, like recently I've been watching uh, 24, I don't know if y'all are into that or not, they'll say previously on 24, and it'll recap what happened, you know. And so previously on Ruth, what's, what's gone on to this point is uh, Naomi and Elimelech left the land that they were in, the land of Bethlehem, the house of bread, because there was a famine in the land. And they thought, hey, this is a good idea to leave Israel and go into Moab, which is kind of the enemy of Israel. They don't like each other too much. They're going to sojourn there and they're going to try to preserve their lives in Moab. And what happens is once they get there, Elimelech, uh, he has the nerve to die. Uh, and so he's dead. He's out of the picture. And then we have uh, Naomi and her sons, Mahlon and Kilion. Uh, they have terrible names. It means weak and sterile. I can't remember what the other one means right now, but it's, it's just as bad. Not good names. Uh, and so they somehow charm some girls into marrying them in Moab. And they have some wives. And it seems like things are turning around for about 10 years. And then they both go and die. And so you have Naomi and Ruth. And Orpah, I called her Oprah a few weeks ago, so if that helps you remember, uh, you have them hanging out. And in this society, it's, it's bad news bears, right? Uh, women were very reliant upon the men. It's a patriarchal society. And so they would have been dependent on uh, the sons or their husbands and Elimelech and all these guys to kind of make provision for them so that they could live a peaceful life, secure lives. And so uh, at the end of verse 5, we found that Naomi was utterly devastated and we said that she was hopelessly hopeless. But then we cheated and we looked at the end of the book and we saw that she indeed was not left without a redeemer. That indeed someone would make everything sad in her life seem untrue. That she would be brought back full. One of the things that she says in chapter one, which we did last week, we finished the rest of the chapter, was that I went away full and I've come back empty. Don't call me pleasant, but call me Mara. Call me bitter. And one of the things we find by the end of the book is that she was never really full. She was filled with idols, with these things that she thought she needed, these things that she thought brought her life. And at the end, we find that she discovers her satisfaction is in the Lord alone and that he's good. And that ultimately his sovereignty over her life was working all things together for his purposes. And that kind of brings us up to, to this week. They, uh, they went back to Bethlehem. Uh, there was that famous verse where uh, Ruth says, look, I know that Orpah, Oprah left, but I'm not going to do that. I know you're trying to get me to do that. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, she says, I'm going to go with you. Nothing but death is going to separate you from me. And they continued on back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, which now has food in it because the Lord had ended the famine. And everybody in the town is kind of abuzz with gossip. Is this Naomi? Is she really back? Everybody died. This is crazy. And they can kind of hear the whispers around him. And Naomi has that awkward moment where she says, look, call me bitter. It's bad. I'm back. And, and it's just really awkward. And that's kind of where we are. It's the beginning of the barley festival. I should turn to Ruth in my Bible to help me out there a little bit. Uh, it's the beginning 
of the barley festival, or barley festival, the harvest. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. The main idea of our text this morning, what we're going to work through today, is that God's providence is portrayed in the placement of his people, his provision for his people, and his protection of his people. And so our outline will look a little something like verses 1 through 3, placement, verses 4 through 16, provision, verses 17 through 23, protection. And the one big thing that I want you to grab hold of this morning and to meditate on as we work through the text and to think about, take it with you through the week, have it in your back pocket, take it out, and, and just you know let it simmer a little bit, is that we ought to be thrilled by God's providence. We ought to be thrilled by God's providence. Before we, we pray and get started, I do want to further clarify what I mean by the words thrill and the word providence. Thrill's definition is a little bit easier, but it means to have a sudden feeling of great excitement or pleasure. Thrill. Second, providence is a little bit more difficult to define. I'll give you J.I. Packer's definition first. He says... It's the unceasing activity of the Creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill He upholds His creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and of men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for His own glory. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, God is continually involved with created things in such a way that He keeps them existing. And maintaining the properties with which he created them, cooperates created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and directs them to fulfill his purposes. Burkhoff more succinctly says this, Providence is God's continued activity in the world for the realization of his plan. So providence is simply a way of speaking about how God is weaving every action in history towards its appointed end, towards accomplishing his goal, his plan. And the mystery of God's providence ought to thrill us as we play our part in it. We should be exciting. It should be exciting to us that God is moving heaven and earth, that he is ordering all things for our good and for his glory. The melody of his providence ought to be stuck in our minds and lilt from our lips in song. It should thrill us. Something worth getting excited about. Let's be thrilled about God's providence this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we need you to meet us here. We need you to help us to read your word and to understand it rightly. We need you to help us listen. We need you to help me preach. We know that's true. Lord, help us to get what you have for us this morning. Change our hearts and transform our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to feel your presence among us. Help us to submit to your voice this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God portrays his providence in the placement of people. Look with me at, at verse 1. 
Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I think this is important that the author is kind of showing his hand a little bit and he's making us privy to some information that Ruth and Naomi don't necessarily have or are considering. He wants us to know that this man, this Boaz, is kind of important so that when we meet him down the road, we can grasp his importance. When Ruth goes gleaning, it's not just going to be in any field with any guy. It's going to be in Boaz's field. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. I wish people still talk like that sometimes. It's very poetic. But Ruth is asking Naomi, hey, is it all right if I go and gather some scraps that we can, so that we can have something to eat? They are in a hard place, as we mentioned before. No husband, no sons. It's a difficult world to live in. Remember we said they're hopeless almost. Ruth here is taking initiative with the hopes of finding someone kind enough to allow her to gather leftover grain in their fields. You see, God had made provision for the poor and for the marginalized in the Mosaic law which outlines God's compassion for the oppressed by prescribing that harvesters deliberately leave grain in the corners of their fields for the economically vulnerable and not go back to gather those ears of grain that they might have dropped. God has made a way for those that are poor to eat. This is the time of the judges, though, however, and we know that these were dark times indeed, and so many had abandoned this practice and were not obedient to it. That's why Ruth is merely hoping that someone is going to let her do it. Moreover, she's a Moabite, so Israelites don't like her too much. And so that, combined with the fact that she's a widow and uh, that she's not in a very powerful house, makes her finding anyone allowing her to glean somewhat unlikely. In my, in my imagination, I imagine this conversation somewhat sarcastically as Ruth uh, says, hey, there's this mosaic law. We're able to go and glean in fields. I'm going to go and try and take advantage of that. And Naomi's kind of sitting there like, oh, my goodness, you have rose-colored glasses on, girl. You don't even know. Yeah, knock yourself out with that. Go out, get after it. And then Ruth goes on her way. She sets out and gleans in the field after the reaper. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband who has passed away. Literally, the text says here that Ruth chanced upon chance to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. We might say it as, what a stroke of luck. Or she just so happened to end up in Boaz's field. The phrase is ironic and it's intentionally redundant. Its purpose is to undermine the purely rational explanations for human experiences and to refine the reader's understanding of providence. In reality, the author is screaming here, do you see the hand of God at work? God has providentially placed Ruth in the field of Boaz. Now, don't miss the fact that Ruth isn't moving along like a robot. But she's making decisions on her own, decisions that matter, decisions that she's responsible for. She doesn't know Boaz from Adam or from anyone else. She doesn't know if she's going to be successful. 
but she takes the initiative to at least try the gleaning. And I think that we can learn something from Ruth as to the importance of taking the initiative. You know, she doesn't just sit on her hands and say, woe is me, this is a rough spot, Lord. She moves into action. She takes advantage of the avenue that God has created in order to bless people like her. Ruth knows God's will for the marginalized. She knows his will for the oppressed. And she knows that those folks might find provision in his mercy through the fields of people that have been obedient to God's law and left grain in the corners, dropped some grain for the poor. She acts in accordance with his word. I think likewise, we ought to be ready to take the initiative in following God's will for us. I think this looks practically like discovering God's plan for us. We can do this by consistent prayer and study of his word, coupled with action in response to that word. Think, for example, uh, we know from Scripture that it's God's will that his people gather together regularly for worship and for encouragement. But if we just sit at our houses and say, Lord, I know that it's your will for me to go to church and to gather in the assembly so that I can be encouraged and so that I can encourage others towards Christ's likeness. And we just pray and pray and pray. Guess what? We're never going to actually end up in the assembly, right? There's not going to be this magical like teleportation where you just like, boom, hey, you're here with people. No, we have to say, Lord, make me obedient to this. Make gathering together with others a priority in my life. You have said it's for my good. That's how I grow up into maturity in Christ. And so I want to do that. You actually have to come and and show up here and get with other people. You have to take the initiative in following God's plan. We must take action for our obedience to become a reality. Followers of Jesus will take initiative in following God's plan. God uses Ruth's initiative here. And he places her in the field. Not of just any man, but in the field of Boaz. Be thrilled by God's providence. God's providence is also portrayed in his provision for his people. Look with me at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, And the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who's this young woman? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather after the sheaves, after the reapers. And so she has come and continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz shows up at his field. His workers are are, are doing their thing, gleaning. And he says, hey, how are you? He gives them a blessing and they bless him back. They like working for Boaz. He seems to be a pretty good guy. I actually really like his name. I, I tried to get Chelsea to name Elliot Boaz, but she just would not get on board with that. I don't know why. It's a great name. Sam Boaz, there's workers love him and they're working for him. And he, he notices uh, Ruth off in the field. Somebody said, who, who is that? Who does she belong to? What is she doing here? And his foreman says, oh, uh, she's just gleaning in the field. She's, she's kind of the, the lady that came back with Naomi. They're, they're kind of poor. They're in a hard spot. And uh, verse 7, admittedly, the Hebrew is, is really, really difficult so that it can be interpreted a bunch of different ways. I think there are two primary ways. One is that Ruth came and was standing in the field and was waiting for permission to glean. So she just kind of had been standing there all day without resting. 
And the other one is that she had been working all day, that the foreman gave her permission and she'd been after it already and that Boaz is just kind of come in and affirming the foreman's decision. Either way, uh, the point is that she has been diligent in her task to try and find food for herself and for Naomi. Upon hearing that she's been there all day, Boaz tells Ruth, Stay in my field. Don't go to another field. Stay in my field with my people, and I'll make sure that you get taken care of. I think it's, it's funny here. He institutes what I think is probably the, the first ever sexual harassment policy, right? He says, don't anybody touch Ruth. You know, don't make any advancements on her. Don't make fun of her. Leave her alone. Be nice to her. So it's a good sexual harassment policy, and it's good reason for her remaining in his field, because in other fields she might be assaulted and mistreated. I mean, he even tells her that she's allowed to drink from the water cooler, right? He says, hey, get some water if you need it. This is actually an overwhelming and significant kindness on the part of Boaz. I mean, look at how Ruth responds. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner, not even like you. She can't believe his generosity. I don't know the last time that somebody privileged you with drinking from their water cooler, but usually this isn't your response, right? I can't believe I have found favor. I get to have a drink from the water cooler, but it's significant here. Block writes, In a cultural context in which normally foreigners would draw for Israelites, that's water, and women would draw for men, Boaz's authorization of Ruth to drink from the water that his men have drawn is indeed extraordinary. His kindness is extraordinary. Ruth is shocked, not only at his kindness, his exceeding kindness, but at the fact he would be so kind to her, a foreigner. She's shocked that she would be given such mercy. The reason that she's shocked is because just like today, racism and elitism are prevalent. Ruth expects to be mistreated because of her race and because of her class. But Boaz cares about neither. He's not concerned with her social status, but with her need. My prayer for you and for me this morning is that we would be more like Boaz in this. That we would not allow racial or social stigmas to dictate how we behave towards others or how we steward our resources. But that our actions would be shaped with the gospel. That we would be graceful and merciful. Friends, let us show no partiality between white and black between, you know, Mexican and American, between foreigner and national. Let us not show favoritism. There isn't any partiality after all, right? Because at the foot of the cross, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. All men are sinners. All men need a Savior. We all need to receive Jesus' loving kindness that leads us to repentance Leads us to gleaning the fruits of righteousness. We need Christ to feed us, lest we starve. Boaz responds to Ruth's question by telling her that he's heard of Naomi's kindness. 
He's heard that, of what she's done for Naomi. And he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That word wings is important. Put it in the back of your mind because you're going to need it next week. All right. Just just a little tip there. Next week, we'll come to it. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is blessing Ruth. He's encouraging Ruth. He says, only God can make restitution to you for what you have given up. And he paints this lovely picture, kind of a, a mother hen, if you can think of gathering her chicks behind her wings as a refuge, as protection. Boaz doesn't yet recognize that he will serve as God's wing that is spread over Ruth. She then tells Boaz, you've comforted me greatly. That's a load off my mind. You're telling me you're going to take care of me. This is awesome. It's in context like this that Ruth's comfort is conveyed in a sense of relieving of tensions. It's like Boaz has purchased a massage for her and she just spent the day at the spa and it's just been really relaxed. She had all this stuff on her mind and now she can kind of take a sigh of relief. Whew. Thank you, Boaz. Boaz isn't done yet, though. He, he goes further and he has Ruth join him and his workers for a meal. He invites her to share the meal like everyone else. He says, hey, dip your, dip your bread in this sauce. It's great. It's not just for me. You can have some too. He fully incorporates her in. He gives her a seat at the table. And then he gives her so much food that she's able to take a doggy bag home, right? He's kind. And then when Ruth heads back to work, Boaz reinforces what he had earlier told his workers. Be nice to her. Then he goes further. He says, hey, intentionally leave grain behind for this woman. Make sure she can just simply pick it up. She doesn't even really have to work that hard for it. Make sure she is provided for. As followers of Jesus, we ought be marked by this kind of kindness. Friends, be marked by kindness. God has providentially made provision for Ruth and Naomi through Ruth's initiative and through Boaz's kindness. God's providence is thrilling. Be thrilled by God's providence. Next, we see God's providence that worked in the protection of Ruth. In verse 17, we see Ruth head home and uh, she shows Naomi's the day's take. This is what I got today. And Naomi, you know, she gets wide-eyed and says, where did you glean today? Where did you get all that, girl? She said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth says, uh, the guy's name was Boaz. It's a weird name, but he was cool. I was cool. We got plenty of food now. And Naomi must have spit out her wine. You have got to be kidding me. Boaz is one of our redeemers. Ruth then goes on, oh, well. That's cool, I guess. He's one of our redeemers and told me not to go to any field either, to keep coming back, that he was going to take care of me. And Naomi kind of gets her hands together and she, you can see the wheels turning already. She says, this is good. This is very, very good. Not only will staying in Boaz's field get you close to one of our redeemers, but it's going to protect you from some of the dangers of going elsewhere. We're then told that Ruth continues to go back to Boaz's field day after day, and not only for this particular harvest during the barley season, but I believe it's the, it's the wheat season that she stays through as well. She's going to get two seasons. 
this section of scripture is kind of awesome. I, I like it a lot. Naomi's just overwhelmed with how much food Ruth brings home, which is likely about two weeks worth, in case you were curious. And then she discovers that not only does she have this food, but it was from one of their redeemers. Now, some of us were like, why is Naomi so ecstatic? Why is she excited about this? And I think to understand why, we have to understand the concept of a kinsman redeemer. Block writes, as a kinship term, term, it denotes the near relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of a relative. And he comes into play, especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get himself or herself out of a crisis. The custom of redemption was designated to maintain the wholeness and the health of the family, of relationships, even after a person had died. Boaz qualifies to rescue Ruth and to rescue Naomi, to rescue the line of Elimelech, which will be the line from which Jesus comes. The seed's not, I'm sorry, the progeny or the line of Elimelech's not quite in view yet. But the person of Boaz and his ability to save Ruth and Naomi from their desperate condition is. God placed Ruth in the field of Boaz, provided for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, and protected Ruth through the kindness of Boaz. God's providence is portrayed in the placement of his people, his provision for his people, and the protection of his people. His providence is thrilling. Friends, God has been at work in your actions this morning. He's placed you here that you might hear of the provision that he has made for you in your desperate condition, in your desperate situation. He's invited you to come under his wing of protection. Just as Naomi and Ruth were oppressed socially and economically, we are oppressed spiritually and relationally. Our sin has alienated us from God. It's alienated us from who we are called to be. Our insistence on doing things our way instead of God's way is indeed sinful. It's a way that leads to disappointment, disillusionment, and death. Sin leaves us entirely unsatisfied and completely alone. No one is without the stain of sin. Friends, your condition is desperate. You need someone to feed and to satisfy your soul. Someone to be kind enough to invite you into his field that you might glean. And Jesus does just that. He offers to provide for your need of peace with God. He's able to do so because he took hell on the cross that you might have heaven. He took the punishment for your sins so that you might be freed from your slavery to it. The freedom that Jesus offers can only be enjoyed by a lifetime commitment to follow him. Eternal life, the good life, life abundant, is only available to those that believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Following Jesus doesn't simply mean that you just say you believe in him and you get your get out of hell free card. And then go about doing things the way that you want to do. Following Jesus means daily coming to his field. Daily seeking his mercy and his grace. 
means continually depending on his kindness to conform you to his image. It means becoming in practice what he's declared you to be. Following Jesus means loving him above all else. It means holding him as the apple of your eye, as your treasure. And it's only in loving God that we will find true satisfaction. After all, that's what we're created for, is to love God, to worship God. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The good life means worshiping, means loving Jesus. And it's this life that he offers you this morning. God has been at work in your actions. He's placed you here that you might hear of his provision for you. That he might protect you from the wrath that you deserve underneath the wing of the cross of Christ. Only Jesus can protect you from the condemnation that you have earned. Only Jesus offers you refuge beneath his wings. Will you take refuge under the cross this morning? Will you place your hope in the resurrected Savior? Will you respond to God's loving kindness by giving him your whole life, your whole heart this morning? God's providence is portrayed in the placement of his people, his provision for his people, his protection of his people. Non-Christian, will you join his people? And together with that people, be thrilled at his providence. 